decision to be a novelist happens much sooner, much earlier than people think. It happens in, when you're about 12 or 13. It's that stage of your life where you begin to commune with, with yourself. You start to keep diaries and notebooks and write poems, perhaps, and suddenly you're aware of an inner voice inside you, and you're interested in that voice. And I, in my view, the novelists are just the ones who, didn't, who never grew out of that. Leo Robson, you have written about Amos in great depth. And so tackling a relatively small novel, Other People, one of the less read novels, is going to be really interesting. For you, it's, it's perhaps one of his best or certainly one of your favourites. So Other People, briefly, for those who haven't read it, it's his fourth novel. It comes in 1981, a successor to his third and I think to me his sort of most consistently successful novel, which was, which was called Success, again, another sort of slightly abstract or conceptual title and in that case it also mulches into it other words like sex and cess and suck so this for me is the key amos really not the novel but this period of amos it's the late from the late 1970s i suppose until money when money is published in early 84 that sort of six year period when he's living in bayswater he's not yet married He's working some of the time at the New Statesman, but then he leaves that to write full-time novels and then a lot of features for The Observer. And the first novel that he publishes in this period where he's no longer a full-time uh, employee of a magazine is Other People. And it begins with a woman waking up in a sort of hospital or institution and she can't remember anything, who she is, what the world's like. She looks around and she does have access to certain ideas and certain language and it's kind of arbitrary and Kingsley Amos complained in a letter to Philip Larkin that it's sort of slightly random what she does and doesn't know. He says, you see, there's this girl with amnesia shit, you know, you know what I mean. She's forgotten what a lavatory is and thinks that cisterns and pipes are statuary. But then how does she know what statuary is? So it's got this slightly arbitrary method. She hears someone uh, saying Mary had a little lamb. So she calls herself Mary Lamb. And she's taken up by a succession of sort of gothic, grotesque figures in London, alcoholics, prostitutes or people who are kind of involved in prostitution. And she yeah. gradually learns that she is probably the survivor of an attack on a woman called Amy Hyde, H-I-D-E. But clearly it's sort of playing in Jekyll and Hyde. Or perhaps a reincarnation of this woman, Amy Hyde, who has been killed by a man called Mr. Wrong. And she's told this by a police detective whom she encounters called Prince. But essentially what the novel is about is what would someone who is in the adult world, who looks like an adult, would therefore probably be treated like an adult, what would they make of human nature? But as many people have said on the series, Martin Amis wrote mostly about men. And it seems to me that this is a novel about a woman discovering the nature of men in many cases, you know, yeah. and how in some respects, Mary Lamb is another sounding board and surface on which men project themselves much as they do in Martin Amis's later novels, particularly London Fields. Yeah. So it turns out that Mary Lamb has, has probably been or is this woman, Amy Hyde, who was the opposite of a Mary Lamb type. So Mary Lamb is an innocent and Amy Hyde was a kind of vixen. And obviously, you know, you could say that Amos is guilty of trotting out sort of Madonna slash whore stereotypes or archetypes. But I think he's sort of playing with them really. I mean, in London Fields, which is about 
a woman called Nicola Six who wants to arrange her own murder on the day she turns 35. When she's talking to one of her two suitors, Guy Clinch, she pretends that she's this very virginal, innocent person. And when she's talking to the mad, violent darts player, Keith Talent, she plays up her wild sexual history. She had an affair with the Shah of Iran and, and all this kind of stuff. And 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 that the and London Fields is quite similar to other people. Other people, it does sort of turn out that whatever happened to Amy Hyde, she probably organised herself. So she is also in in the term used in London Fields, a murdery or a near murdery. We don't quite know whether mm. Amy's been killed or whatever. But essentially, yes, she moves into London society and very quickly people try to exploit her. I wouldn't say the novel's primarily about. No, it is. It is. It is primarily about what men want to do to women, what they can't resist doing to women, what women unwittingly, I suppose, do to men. So she, there's a man called Alan who is sort of becomes obsessed with Mary, and then they start having an affair, but he ends up killing himself. And one of the things the novel's about, I think, is how other people sort of are unaffected by how you actually behave. So Amy was a sort of villain or malefactor. And she did drive people mad. We meet one of her ex-boyfriends and he says, you know, how cruel she was and how unpleasant. Mary, on the other hand, you know, she's sort of prepared to be taught about things and she's she's innocent and she tries to be kind and she tries to learn from literature about positive virtues, I suppose. But essentially, as you point out, I guess, because she's a woman, really, people do bad things to her and sort of feel like that like she's doing bad things to them so i mean essentially she becomes a kind of guide to kind of slightly more abstract or timeless elemental primitive forces sort of dichotomies and archetypal things in, in this case to do with power social relations but not specifically kind of the english class system any kind of hierarchy i think mm. it's just a very interesting uh it offers a prism i think for reading a lot of amos's work we spoke before this podcast about how you wanted to discuss Amos generally, and you said that both novels, Success and Other People, were good for discussing him as plagiarist. When you talk about Amos as plagiarist, what do you mean? Well, he wrote an interesting essay in 1979 about plagiarism when it turned out that an American writer called Epstein had uh, stolen lots of lines from Amos's first novel, The Rachel Papers, in a novel called Wild Oats. And he admitted in that to a few of his own borrowings. He said he borrowed a whole passage from Ballard with permission. I'm not actually sure what that refers to. And the, um, he dis- he stole a description from our mutual friend in the Rachel papers. So he sort of, even though he does in the end say that, does accuse this this younger writer of plagiarism, he, he says that plagiarism is something that writers do. I think what I really mean is that there are lots of little moments. There's a there's a funny bit in experience where someone's talking to him about a piece he wrote about Saul Bellow, where he, he walked across a bridge to see Bellow, eyes streaming in the mineral wind. And someone said, why would you waste that on a piece of journalism? And he said, well, I'd stolen it from Saul Bellow. Maybe I think just the mineral wind bit. So he's on the record as talking about this stuff. And there are little uh, borrowings from his own father's work in some of the early novels. But I suppose what I mean... Well, there are two senses. One is the macro sense where I think you're alluding, you're not quite alluding to something because people wouldn't know the source. So if you're taking a phrase because you like it, 
but it doesn't actually call into play a literary precedent, then that's a sort of that's a form of theft. And he he does that. You could call this more of an in joke, but there's a scene in Success where Gregory, who's one of the two narrators who turns out to be a fantasist, is having sex with a woman, and um, trigger warning, I think, because it's a disgusting image. He says uh, the bedsheet resembled a butcher's apron by the time I'd flipped her onto her front. And that's taken from the first poem in Craigrain's first collection, I believe, The Onion Memory, which had actually just come out, where he, which is called, I think, The Butcher. And it's all about comparing a butcher's apron to, you know, to prostitution and so on. So he's basically stolen that comparison there. And I think the other sense is that he just, he just borrows wholesale things that are rather useful to him. So success, which I love as a book, is tremendously indebted to two novels. Joseph Heller's Something Happened, which is a phrase he uses again and again in success, what happened down there, something did, and it comes up in other people a fair few times as well. And then I think even more so Iris Murdoch's A Word Child, published in the mid-70s. I know that Amos read it. He didn't write about it, though he did write about a number of her novels over the years um, in reviews, always making clear that he really admired her, but the, the reviews themselves were quite mocking. Iris Murdoch is absolutely crucial to Martin Amis. First of all, she was writing novels in the first person exclusively from a male perspective. So she wrote six novels in the first person and they're all from male perspectives. And I just think if you're a young writer in the early 1970s and you're going to write about slightly raffish, uh, romantic or woman-obsessed narrators... Uh, in London in a slightly exaggerated, more so in Amos's case in a Murdoch's, but nevertheless uh, an outsize London and you're going to make references to Bayswater and to the London Underground and to London weather in a slightly overdone way and so on then you know, you're going to be learning things from Iris Murdoch. The success word child thing is just very similar. It's They're both about two blokes who live in a flat in Bayswater. They begin with one of them having well, a telephone call, or in the case of Word Child, visit from a woman who's looking for the one who isn't the one who receives the visit, as it were. He lost his mother. Hilary in A Word Child and Terry in Success both lost their mothers in a violent instant when they were six years old, and they end up sort of having to drag themselves up from like poverty and, and misery. It seems kind of quite quite brazen in the sense that this was a prominent book that was published literally about two years before Success. Interesting. Uh, yeah, success it takes place it goes January to December. A word child's days of the week, but I mean, there's, there's many. So, so to, to move back to other people, you have a few passages you'd like to read for us from the novel. What I thought I'd do was read a few passages which show how the novel works in terms of Mary's unfamiliarity with the world. This is her essentially spoiler alert experiencing rain. Not too far above the steep canyons there had hung an imperial backdrop of calm blue distance in which extravagantly lovely white creatures, fat, sleepy things, hovered, cruised and basked. Carelessly and painlessly lanced by the slow-moving crucifixes of the sky, they moreover owed allegiance to a stormy yellow core of energy, so irresistible that it had the power to hurt your eyes if you dared to look its way. But then this changed. 
the tufted creatures lost their outlines, drifting upwards at first to form a white shawl over the dome of the air before melting back into a slope of unbroken grey beneath their master, which lost its power and boiled red with rage, or was it just dying, she thought, as she started to see the terrible changes below. With humiliation, candour and relief, people of all kinds, and she's identified six kinds of other people, Julie began to hasten in hardened fear. Variety grew weary, and its pigments gave up their spirits without struggle, some with stealth, others with hurtful suddenness. Soon the passages and their high glass walls appeared to be changing places, or at least they agreed to share what activity remained. The daredevil roadsters broke in two and raced their ghosts away. Above, the bruised distance seeped ever nearer, baying in panic with their wheels out, showing their true colours now, the trolleys of the sky warped downwards towards earth as further below the people made haste to escape from beneath the falling air. So why this particular passage to start off with? First of all, I think it's very impressively sustained. I mean, obviously, we could say it doesn't quite make sense because why does she know what a crucifix is but she doesn't know what an aeroplane is or why does she know what a trolley is but she doesn't know what a cloud is? Can we talk a little bit about that dilemma of having to convey in his literary style somebody who isn't able to call these concepts to mind. I mean, in Kingsley Amos's novel, Ending Up, which was published in the 1970s, I think probably in 1974, it's about an old people's home. And there's a character in that who suffers from aphasia or aphasia, and they can't really remember nouns. So Amos get, Kingsley Amos gets to describe lots of things that we're familiar with because you know, the person doesn't name nouns, so they have to unpack it. Whereas in this case, that's not the logic, is it? Because we know she knows the word trolleys and she knows what a statue is and so on. So it's not just that she can't name things, but she can kind of feel her way around them. It just, yeah, I guess you just have to accept the artifice of it. Certainly one of the crucial backdrops to this was this poem called uh, A Martian Sends a Postcard Home by Amos's friend and, and former tutor at, at, at Oxford, Craig Rain, the poet, um, and in a Martian sends a postcard home, which appeared in the New Statesman while Amos was writing this book. Lots of things are described in that way, uh, but obviously you still need language. So it's been a long time since I read that poem, but essentially it's stuff like uh, they at night they close their eyes and watch movies about themselves, you know, so that's a dream, or he doesn't know what a book is, but he calls them Caxtons after the printer William Caxton so it's a sort of slightly strange what the frame of reference that's available to these outsider figures. This novel being the novel that precedes money I noticed that there were a good handful of lines that are used again in money almost yeah. word for word because you said that there were lots of crossovers with London Fields and I see where that comes from but again verbatim I think in this novel he says a childless adult is childish. Yeah, he also uses, he uses that in that experience as well. And in experience. Yeah. And there are mm. others. But the other one I wrote down is um, where Mary thinks to herself, I'm a girl, so I drink hot drinks with both hands. John Self comments on this, you know, spreading her fingers around the cup for the warmth, something that he says only, only women yeah. seem to do this. Well, now this, to me, that was where I mistook what you meant when you talked about plagiarism in our correspondence for self-plagiarism because I thought he really is using 
whole lines. I always thought that Amos sort of wiped the slate clean. Okay, I've said what I need to say there. Um, now I've got something new to say. Actually, no, he wrote things down that he thought, that's so good that I'm going to have to use it again. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there were things that he... He certainly had habits and things that went where you can't help but feel, I think this is good, but maybe not as good as he he thinks it is, which obviously <laughs> is brought out a little bit uh, by, you know, by him use, using them again and again. But uh, yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the plagiarisms, I suppose he was just immersed in literature, really. Um, and one of the things he was trying to think about was what literature does to life. In fact, I mean, in in at the beginning of London Fields, so you've got a copy there. Yeah, he. Um, it's about a a, a a novelist or a would be novelist who has this fantastic story land in his lap, and he says novelists don't usually have it so good, do they? When something real happens, something unified, dramatic, and pretty saleable, and they just write it down. And at the beginning of um, other people in the same, uh, in similarly in a kind of, not not quite an author's note, but a sort of prologue written by this mysterious narrator. He says, no, I just wish there was another way, something more self-contained, economical and shapely. So what's the next passage? Take the us ne- through yeah. that and the thinking behind it. I mean, the whole book is constructed in this way until quite late on where she's not really such an outsider. But um, this is quite an intrusive n- n- narrated passage. Mary will gain ground fast now. If you ever make a film of her sinister mystery, you'll need lots of progress music to help underscore her renovation at the Botham's hands. Ironically, she enjoys certain advantages over other people. Not yet stretched by time, her perceptions are without seriality. They are multiform, instantaneous and random, like the present itself. She can do some things that you can't do, glance sideways down an unknown street and what do you see an aggregate of shapes figures and light and the presence or absence of movement mary sees a window and a face behind it the grid of the paving stones and the rake of the drain pipes the way the distribution of the shadows answers to the skyscape above when you look at your palm you see its five or six central grooves and their major tributaries but Mary sees the numberless scratched contours and knows each of them as well as you know the crenellations of your own teeth. She knows how many times she has looked at her hands, 113 at the left, 97 at the right. She can compare a veil of smoke sliding out of a doorway with a particular flourish of the blanket as she strips her bed. This makes a kind of sense to her. When the past is forgotten, the present is unforgettable. Mary always knows what time it is without having to look. That's from Funes and Memorius. And yet she hardly knows anything about time or other people. Teeth. Teeth again. If I can sum up Amos's entire work <laughs> in three words, I think it would be Keith and Teeth. Yeah. That's um, true. Leo, this is one of your favourite novels, and I don't think we get covered. Why so? There's the negative sense in that I just think most of the novels just don't work, really. I mean, success. I think it goes without saying that you're probably the biggest Amos skeptic that we've had on the series. Right. That's mm. even taking James Murray into account, who says that the novels really didn't ever do anything for him. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two ways of saying it. One of them, he just doesn't really cater to lots of the criteria that we have for novelistic pleasure or edification. And that's fine. That's his prerogative. I think I, the, where the problems begin is when you start wondering what is the alternative sort of realm of pleasure that he's offering. And it's clearly 
the musical pleasures of um, visual description and sort of, uh, you know, our all pleasures of phrase making. And those are pretty strong. And I think the reason why I think Success and Other People are probably his best novels, though I think people probably think that's almost a concertedly eccentric view, is that even though when you open Money in London Fields, they're symphonically sort of much richer and he did make quite a leap in his sort of gifts uh, as a describer and an, and an evoker and a riffer and so on. I just think those books are so overlong and just sort of badly carpentered, really. And so I think when the novels are shorter and tighter, even though I'm not sure that they actually ever quite have the benefits of, you know, a strong narrative architecture, I think at least, well, I suppose at least they have the the virtue of, of brevity. I, I do often have this slight thought experiment or fantasy of like of sort of, I don't know, Updike or Sorbello, you know, on page 372 of London Fields and just sort of being like, what is this? What is going on? Like, I think we need a reading of an example of one of those moments. Okay, well, if what you page number out. did I say? I don't know. I'll, I'll just go to a random page, London Fields, and just imagine what one of these great... Here we go. They entered the pub and its loud world of primitive desires, desires owned up to and hotly pursued and regularly gratified. Daily fears having been put aside for the night, that was the idea. The desiderata included goods and services, sex and fights, money and more TV, and above all, in fateful synergy, that was before that word obviously became debased, drink and darts. A shifting tabletop caught Guy an early and awkward blow, flooding his vision with a familiar distress, so he just squeezed his way through after her, after Nicola for whom the heavy press seemed to part as far as the tips of her coat's bristles. Hell will be noisy and crowded, he thought. Hell will be busy. Now they reached the body of the Marquis of Edenderry, and here was air and space and table and chairs. The pub was simply too big to be slaked by mere human beings. They sat and were immediately attended by a uniformed waiter, whose erectness and impatience declared that tonight would be high efficiency, high turnover, the managerial team having no doubt set their sights on an epic profit. There were also alert sweepers with long-handled brushes and dustpans to tackle the upended ashtrays and the shattered glass, and when a fight broke out nearby, surprisingly vigorous and sanguinary for so early in the evening, two ageing bouncers cruised along and floored the likely victor with crisp punches to the nose. They then administered some exemplary stomping with cross looks cast about. I mean, it's like... You know, it's bravura stuff, but what is going... You know, it's sort of like it is... You also kind of feel like this is a 40-year-old man who's talking about really serious things like nuclear weapons and, you know, <laughs> climate change and male violence. But he's able to become interested at enormous length. And it's just quite frivolous stuff. And I, I think that... I mean, there are loads of quite interesting things about Amos's career. Martin Amos devotees everywhere listening to this, licking their wounds, drying their tears. Calls to mind Kingsley Amos's thing about, you know, if he could only just write a sentence like he finished his drink and left the room. I mean, I, it's quite surprising when you know that Amos is, was this person who didn't want to ever use a cliche and as he once said you know wouldn't want to write a sentence any any other guy could have written or whatever in other people i think the first sentence is her first feeling as she smelled the air was one of intense and helpless gratitude i mean he's actually in closer touch i don't think this is really why i like other people or or particularly important facet of it but it is in closer touch with ordinary novelistic habits like i think partly because on the one hand he gets to do all this refreshing description 
of the world and its ways and so on. But I think also in order to set up the world and to make Mary's passage through it comprehensible, he has to do quite a lot of like banal building blocksy writing. Clearly when he's writing about a pub or a hospital, he gets to do it in this in this fun way from from her perspective, for sure. But at other points, he kind of has to feel his way through. I mean, I mean, we've just done a pub in London Fields. I'll very do quickly a few lines from other people on a pub. The pub was a public house, one of those rare places where people could go without being asked. Appropriate care had therefore been taken to make things as hard on the senses as possible, or else everybody would come here, or else none of them would ever leave. There was a stale, malty, sawdust heat and an elusive device to hurt the ears. The wall of sound came, at went it, came and went at you very cleverly, with deceptively brief intervals, never giving you time to rearrange your thoughts. It's, I mean, it's not, he doesn't do it that differently in London Fields, given that London Fields is told from the perspective of, of people who have been to pubs before. But that's kind of what he wants to do. He wants to you know, I don't know, the scales to fall from your eyes or something and, and, and the world to be refreshed. And I initially, so that you're like, wow, that, that is that is kind of what a cloud looks like. But then I think at a deeper level to sort of make you realise how strange human nature and human customs are. Hmm. And I think that is a ways in which he's more like Borges and Kafka and some elements of Nabokov than he is like these big bruising writers who are, who were interested in particular social and historical formations. That said, I do think he changed, and I do think his writing about the Holocaust and so on is about the Holocaust, you know, whereas I think other people isn't really necessarily about London. What would you say was Martin Amis's greatest success as a novelist overall and, and perhaps where he fell down hardest? I think what Amos is, is really good at writing about is kind of fear and anxiety i mean we think of him as this sort of quite cool guy and you know he was interested in what we now consider quite gen x-y things like video arcades and football and so on things that were kind of associated with a more i suppose thuggish tendency when he was coming of age in the 70s um but i think really he has a line somewhere in his essay on joan didion about how um we're most attracted to what we most deplore and I think Amos was right. It was able to write about dark, unpleasant things so well because he he was so fearful. I think he is essentially kind of a puritan, kind of a moralist. I mean, a pet theory of mine, which I've never elaborated in print, is that he's actually very similar to a writer who he would be considered the opposite of, who which is A. N. Wilson, who in fact they were the Alpha and Omega of the nineteen eighty three grants a list of best young British novelists I mean alphabetically but they have a lot in common and Amos is considered you know maybe a, a bit lefty and trendy and Anne Wilson was famously considered like a fogey but I think in a way and there are many similarities be between them and they're very similar in age and educated in Oxford and probably similar literature and so on but I think they both I think what I what 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 sparked that comparison in my mind was I think they're both kind of Puritan moralists who I, that, that's putting it too strongly, but they both got a moralistic strain, Christian in Wilson's case, uh, secular in, in Amos's. And I think one of the reasons that they write about things like tabloid newspapers or uh, paedophilia or, or bad behavior and, and so on it, it is because they have an imp 
applied, you know, order, which is, you know, which those things thwart. So anyway, for me, Amos is really at his best when he leans into finding things scary and his own anxieties. Like he was fearful of like getting on the underground at, at points in his late 20s. And he writes about that brilliantly in Success. You know, other people is about living in London and finding it basically a bloody, scary, weird, sinister place, you know, and finding emotions scary and messy i think where he lets me down and where i where i'm less interested in him is all this sort of stentorian confidence that he has and all this sort of rhetorical know-it-allism and 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 so on and i think that you know it's difficult to be a to be a good writer forever um but i think that yeah i think he's sort of i think he's sort of maybe in flight from his anxieties in 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 a way that maybe became a bit less productive so for instance when when uh, mary comes up with six kinds of people that she experiences in the world that is showing someone very fearful trying to taxonomize something unfamiliar and strange when amos is doing it you know there are four genres you kind of he's always making lists it's sort of like he doesn't really seem to he seems to think that's actually a helpful way of approaching the world so I th- and I think so I suppose I think the more unconscious he was in his writing and the more he was able to kind of channel his anxieties the richer his visions and when he tried to sort of master them or sort of wasn't didn't find enough distance I think it was especially true in his final book Inside Story he sort of I suppose he just was I suppose the only way you could put it is he was denying his own great strength you think that his style was a coping mechanism for anxiety do you th- no, genuinely do you think that Martin Amis taxonomized and organized the world in big sweeping categories and minutiae to tame deep fear? Yeah, I, I suppose I I do. Um, you know, I do probably think that. Yeah, he was a you know, I don't know, sort of five foot seven man. Uh, you know, growing up in quite seedy and raffish things with. Yeah, and in and in probably and in quite frightening household scenarios, maybe a bit. I mean, he wrote a little bit about suffering abuse and experience. I, I do think that there was. I mean, it sounds like I'm sort of trolling him. I mean, I mean, I just don't think he could have been an interesting writer or as brilliantly intelligent as he was in any other way. But I, I, I do think that the whole thing is, yeah, is is sort of to do with anxiety and his relationship with with women. It's quite similar to Philip Roth, actually. I think that what happened what ha- with Amos, I don't know enough about his personal relationships and would never, you know, pronounce on those. Well, maybe some of the earlier ones, which have been much written about. But I think if you see the way he writes about these female characters in um, in other people, in London Fields, uh, in The Pregnant Widow, in Inside Story, there's often this figure who, who may or may not have a real-life model who I think essentially is a brilliantly charismatic well there's a description there's a good description of amy hyde and other people brilliant to be near but also completely sort of unbalanced and i and i, and I think what he was doing was and we all do this but he was finding objective correlatives for his worldview so if you're scared of women you're going to find a scary woman i suppose perhaps we end on that description of amy hyde what do you think so this is a man called Michael Shane, who um, who Mary finds and who was a former lover of Amy, who Mary may or may not be. She was my first love, he began. In every sense, my first love. You'll always love your first love, they say. They don't lie, 
She broke my heart. I'm sorry, said Mary. It's all right. It's fixed now, I think, he said and smiled again. It was unforgettable too. I mean, the good things were unforgettable too. She was tremendous to be near. Funny, very exciting, very expressive. Wild as hell, of course. Very passionate. Michael allowed himself a full ten seconds of sultry-eyed reverie at this point. It might have lasted even longer if the complicated telephone on his desk hadn't suddenly parped out. But what was bad about her, Mary asked. Insecurity, I think. For all her brains and looks, I think she was really desperately insecure. Big deal, thought Mary, as Michael chatted contentedly on. Insecure? Is that all? Who isn't? What did people do and say about what they said and did before that kind of word came along? Leah Robson, it's been an absolute joy. It's probably the most granular, the most psychoanalytical, and I think the most directional in terms of giving people a whole list, a whole reading list of other writers to read and explore if they are interested to understand how Martin Amis constructed his literary style and the various names that he owes in that respect. Uh, I've really enjoyed this and I very much recommend that people read Other People, A Mystery Story. As a, Again, it's one of those novels that is very easy to overlook. There are so many things about it um, that foreshadow the novel that comes immediately after, which is the novel that we will be tackling in the next episode. Hang tight for that. But Leo, thank Thank you very much. Thank you, Jack. It's been a pleasure.